This is going to be fun. Instead of talking about the lockout or the Twins' lack of free agent moves, we're going to talk about Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, Minnie Minoso, Bud Fowler, Gil Hodges, Buck O'Neill, and Tim Kirkshin. We are talking about great human beings, great ambassadors for the game, and the newest members of the Hall of Fame. Of course, Tony O., Cott, Minoso, Fowler, Hodges, O'Neill going into the Hall of Fame, Tim Kirkshin winning the Career Excellence Award, which is kind of the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame. This is fantastic, guys. I mean, I just couldn't be happier for this group. Uh, you know, I wish it happened earlier for some of them, but they're also, it, you know, even beyond just breaking down numbers and doing things you have to do when you are, are charged with voting for Hall of Fames, right. these are great people. These are great people. Uh, these are great ambassadors, great figures in the game. And the great thing is you guys and me, we can tell stories about most <laughs> of these people. And we will tell stories about most of these people. So let me let me introduce the show and we'll get to story time. This is Chin Music, part of the TalkNorth.com podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at TalkNorthPod. Thanks to our producer, Brandon Morton, who is here to my right. We are live at the Pizza Luce in Eden Prairie. It is a nasty, nasty night outside. Anybody who made the effort to get here, we really appreciate it. Uh, and we will try to reward you for being here. Pizza Luce, of course, you know, great pizza, great hoagies, great beers and drinks, great places to hang out and watch sports. Uh, I'll tell you about our other sponsors here in a minute. But let, let's get right to it. And let's start with Tony Oliva because... For, because where else? Because he's Tony Oliva. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we all know Tony, but of course, Roy, you know him the best. Just just tell me more about Tony. Uh, well, I would just say that there is, there is joy in Mudville tonight because... The mighty Casey did not strike out. The mighty Casey is in the Hall of Fame, and that I, I'm just so so happy. And it, I tweeted a little bit about it, and I felt bad because I was just a little edgy. You, you were know, edgy. The, the you first were edgy time, for Roy Smalley. I was because I was just like, really, it took this long, uh, um, and then I had to come back around, and and uh, now I'm not edgy. I'm I'm ecstatic. It's it's just it's great that he's that he's in the Hall. If you look at his numbers, and we can we can talk about that. It, it's it was a travesty that it, it took that you know as long as long as it did for for eight years, well actually ten years, but for the first eight of those great ten years, there wasn't a better outfielder in the game. There wasn't a better hitter, and I've got all of my stories about Tony, and we'll get to some of them, but they all have to do with conversations that we were having uh, that we had about hitting. And it's just some of my, my most cherished memories and some of the wisest things that were ever said to me in my 13 years in the big leagues and, uh, about hitting. And, and uh, you're right about all of these guys being ambassadors. Tony is, you know, p- perhaps the, the, the poster boy for uh, being an ambassador uh, of the game. And, and so I'm just, just so happy for him. And I think as, and Kitty too, and, you know, all of many, many Minoso of course, but I got to say that you know Buck O'Neill yep. being in—that's gigantic. That is just that is speaking of <laughs> long overdue. You can't even say that. You know, you know, can't even use that phrase. It's just crazy that that he has has not been recognized, and now he is, and and things are a little more right with the world now because these guys are in the Hall of Fame. And Tony Oliva not only was a great hitter, one of the best pure hitters in the history of the game which he proved during those eight to 10 years that he was actually healthy enough to be able to run to first base. But he also was the guy who really got Kirby Puckett going as a power hitter. You bet he did. 
He absolutely did. And Kirby would tell you that he's the one that, that turned him around. I remember in spring, the spring training of uh, 85, I had come back to the Twins. Puck was in his second year. And, uh, you know, he had come up from A-ball, I think, in, in 84. And, and uh, I think got four hits the first game he ever played in. And, and, um, and then in 85, I think 85, I don't remember if 84 would actually qualify as a rookie season or not. But in 85, we were in spring training. And he was getting hit right above the fist and, and uh, all the time. And I, I told him one day, I said, you know, Puck, if your thumbs hold out, you're going to be a hell of a hitter in this league. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was that year that Tony got him. And, uh, you know, the leg kick and, 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 and just the whole approach. I'll talk about that, you know, some of that stuff later. But, yeah, he got him going. And my favorite, Tony, will leave a phrase. He killed the ball. I killed him. Well, you know, <laughs> you know where that came from. Uh, tell me. He told, well. I mean, it, it came from way back, not just not just the story that I have, but he told me the first time I ever heard it was in, oh gosh, I forget, it was in 1980, I think. I was off to a, a slow start after big years in 78, 79. I was off to a low, slow start. I was sitting about, about um, 220 or 225 in, into May. And he came up to me and he says, hey, you know, he said, in 1964, I was hit at 180 on May 16th. 180. Second half of the season, I kill it. I whip it the ball. I, I whip it the ball. I win the champion batting. <laughs> My favorite, favorite one-way conversation. So I just took, looked at him. I said, you mean you think there's hope? And he goes, oh, Second half of the season, you you kill it, <laughs> you kill it the ball. He may be the most perpetually positive person oh, I've ever encountered in my life. I've never seen him upset. I've ne never seen him mad or cross. Always upbeat, uh, regardless of his knees being sore, needing surgery, or um, watching him work with the younger guys. God, I remember Carlos Gomez was couldn't even make solid contact in batting practice, and he's just cursing him up a storm in the batting cage. And Tony comes around in the cage and just puts his hand on. Gomez's shoulder, and he's trying to calm him down. You know, he said, you got to be positive. Positivo. I kept hearing the word positivo, you know, uh, when he's trying to get Gomez straight now, you know. So um, just a, a great guy. And the, the thing about this now, you have to look back. The 1970 Minnesota Twins team now has five Hall of Famers. Yeah, that amazing. Now have yeah. five Hall of Famers on it. Fantastic. That's unbelievable. That's rather remarkable. So and I'm really happy for Jim Cott. Um, uh, in addition to being durable and, and being an effective pitcher, he filled his position as well as anyone during oh. his career. We get the Diamond Awards every year. We have a Jim Cott Defensive Player of the Year Award named after him. 16 gold gloves. Yeah. Um, articulates the game as well as anyone. Um, it's always a treat when he's able to work Twins games for Valley Sports North. I'm, I'm really happy about Buck O'Neill. Having worked at Kansas City for nine years, and the last three I covered the Royals, had a chance to write a, story, a lot of stories about the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame and Buck in general. And a lot of people did not know Buck, and he kind of became a superstar overnight through the Ken Burns baseball documentary. Uh, and after that, he was like a national treasure. He was able to tell the story to Negro Leagues and the Negro Leaguers, and, and you know, he knew Satchel Paige, he knew Josh Gibson, he knew all those guys, you know. And uh, he was able to bring those stories to life. 
And uh, I think it really meant a lot to the cause for the Negro Leagues and the museum. So the museum still stands today, and it continues to grow and prosper. And I think Buck had a huge part of that. I'm, I'm thrilled. Now, he wasn't a tremendous player, but he was a manager. Um, he was the first African-American coach in Major League Baseball history. Uh, as a scout, he signed Lou Brock, Lee Smith, and uh, Joe Carter on his watch um, and was in- instrumental in teaching them life on and off the field. So he has made contributions up and down the chart when you look at the totality of his career. So um, that's one person I'm really happy that, because I, when I was writing for Kansas City, I advocated for Buck to be put in the Hall of Fame then because I wanted it to happen while he was still smelling the roses. Unfortunately, it didn't happen, but I'm still thrilled. I'm sure he's upstairs being, uh, just as thrilled as well. Yeah, good. I hope so. I hope so, because well, well deserved. I, oh, got yeah. my first, I got my first big league hit off Jim Cott. Did you? I didn't know that. <laughs> I did, and that was that was one of the uh, first years that he went into the um, to the Iron Mike Rapid Delivery uh, yep. program. You remember that? It was it yep. was, and I thought it was later on in his career, and then he pitched forever after that. Yep. This is when I came up in 1975, and and uh, Kitty had gone to uh, the White Sox, and he would stand on the mound, that big presence on the mound. He would he would stand there. Like a like a big old country boy, and and uh, he you'd get in the box, and here it comes, and then he, the catcher throwing the ball right back, and, and you'd look up, and he, and he's coming again. Wait, did you get a sign? I mean, how do you know? How do you know what what you? Uh, how's the catcher know what you're throwing? Because I know you're not looking in there. You're, I mean, it was literally that rapid fire, and he had to step out of the box, and say, okay. Just when I step in, I'm going to swing. <laughs> you, step, you step in and get ready because it was coming. Man. Rob, Rob Manfred would love him today. Oh, we'd all love him. Yes. <laughs> you know, now they have, what is it, 30 seconds in between pitches? Yeah. I've Something like that. Yeah. Three. Jim, Jim, Jim Cott would throw 12 pitches in 30 seconds. <laughs> and I, I know I've told you guys this story before, but one of my favorite experiences as a baseball writer was – being out for early batting practice in the Kansas City ballpark and having George Brett walk out in front of the entire Twins contingent and do a series of impersonations. <laughs> and the best one was Jim Cott. He did the sourpuss face, <laughs> and he did the, you know, catch it, throw the ball, throw the pitch as you're catching the ball that you just received back from the catcher as if you have multiple baseballs. It was, it was fantastic. All right, we're going to get into more about all these people. Uh, do you want to introduce the lineup here? Lavelle Eniel III is sitting far to my left. He is columnist with the Star Tribune. Roy Smalley, former Twins great, now Twins broadcaster, is to my immediate left. Brandon Morton, our longtime producer, is to my right. Uh, thank you all for listening to TalkNorth.com. We've grown a lot in the last year. We appreciate the support. And we exist and we thrive because of our sponsors. We've told you about Pizza Luce and Eden Prairie. Also, Memorial Blood Centers. Eleven Wells Distillery over in St. Paul, great place to hang out, especially uh, before or after events over there like Wild Games. Better Edge, great place to, to place your online bets. And Minnesota Propane, we'll tell you more about them later on. Uh, so let's get to Minnie Minoso, because I know you, I didn't know Minnie at all. I'm guessing from your, both of your experiences in Chicago and, and around the American League, you had at least some passing knowledge of him. Yeah, passing uh, interaction. I, I, uh, he was actually still playing when I came into the league in 75. And it was just a marvel, just an absolute marvel. And, uh, it, you know, he was way past everyday prime for sure. But the guy could still hit. And, uh, and, and here's another guy. 
just laughing all the time, having a great time. Uh, it just kind of exuded what your attitude should be when you're playing baseball and, and uh, was around him a little bit. He always had something nice to say to uh, everybody and he was always always laughing and, and talking about how great baseball was. He's just a, just a great guy. I just remember uh, as a White Sox fan, many getting a bats in... 1970 and 1980, just so they could say he played in like five different decades. You know, and here's like, Minnie's like 50 something in yeah. 1980, and here he is, you know, taking, looking at major league pitching, like, oh my God. He actually got a hit. I think he was one for like 12, and actually yeah. got a, a single to left center for the one hit. Um, but, you know, he was like the spirit of a lot of those White Sox teams just because of uh, his relentless attitude, his the space running, you know, just to. He was one of those go-go White Sox type guys, you know, and uh, he was a damn good player as well. So um, as a young White Sox, as a White Sox fan growing up, you know, I definitely recognized uh, many and I'm thrilled that he's in as well. It's just overall just a really cool class. And, it's, and it depends who gets elected for the BBWA vote. Um, that ceremony could take a few hours this year. Yeah. There's going to be a few people that are going to have speeches for, for them uh, um, and Tim Kirchin's going to have a lot of stories to tell when he gets his chance. Oh, man. And so the rest of the class, Bud Fowler, uh, we believe the first black professional baseball player. He played briefly in Stillwater, Minnesota. He was a, ended up being a manager, a coach, a scout. He did pretty much everything in the game. He's a very good player as well. And Gil Hodges. Uh, you know, Gil is revered by the writers I know in New York. Uh, great manager. Great personality, very even keel. Obviously, he engineered the 69 miracle over my beloved Orioles back in the day. Uh, and also an excellent player. Oh, I, man, could he hit. Yeah. Just, yep. And, you know, that was – he was kind of a carryover, uh, the, you know, the golden age of baseball for guys m my age, you know, the, uh, the late 50s into, into early 60s. And he was uh, – he was a phenomenal hitter and player for the Brooklyn uh, Dodgers. And I started, um, you know, collecting baseball cards early and stuff like that. That's how I knew Minnie Minoso because, you know, you'd collect baseball cards. And the, the, the Sox were a pretty good team. They were in the World Series in 59. In, uh, and, uh, you know, it was Nellie Fox and Sherm Lawler and, you know, and Minnie Minoso and Rocky Calavito and those guys. One of the great Dodger teams, Hodges, was, uh, was just – the stud in the middle of the lineup. He was the absolute, I mean, they had Duke Snyder, and they had Pee Wee Reese, and they had Roy Campanella, and they had, you know, all these guys. But Gil Hodges was the stud in the middle. And his case has been, that's, that's been one of those long-time cases yeah. for the BBWA and for the Veterans Committee in terms of uh, eligibility for the Hall. It's amazing how these votes break down, because five years ago, uh, it was Tony and Dick Allen who missed out by one vote, and Cott missed out by two this year, Oliva and Cott get in, and Dick Allen misses out by one. There, you know, it, it took this long for, for all of these guys that are in now. Just really, really sad. It, it, and it, it would be, you know, just really, really happy for this, this group. Uh, but Dick Allen not being in there. I mean, once again, it's like, holy cow. There, you know, Hodges should have been a long time ago. Dick Allen should have been in when he was alive. Tony a long time ago. Yep. You know, all these guys. All these guys. Absolutely. Of course, I'm biased, though. I mean, Dick Allen, as I've said before in the show, was my childhood hero with the White Sox. I just thought he was an amazing home run hitter. Huge, huge arms, huge forearms, and just hit these massive home runs, could drive in runs, and looked a little bit like my father. That's why I think I kind of gravitated toward, toward him. So I didn't know how he was rather a rather eccentric fellow, 
<laughs> as the years went by. And, and uh, yep, uh, Bob Boone telling me the story about Dick Allen being hung over and hitting the first batting practice, pitched 450 feet. You know, that was... Uh, oh, he, pre- was, he, he was hung over all the time. I told, I think I, I, think I, I told you guys a story, didn't I? About, and we need to hear it again. Uh, well, I, okay. Well, his, his rookie year, 64, he came up, my, my uncle, Gene Mox, the manager in, in Philly, and they've got the, a real good ball club, and, and it was Richie Allen back there, not Dick Allen. Everybody called him Richie, right there, wrongly, but... It was Richie Allen, and he was just my my hero. And I would go out to Dodger Stadium with Gene and and hang around the clubhouse and get a uniform and sit in the bench. and And, and he he called me uh, he, he called me Little Roy and and um, and was just really kind to me. But anyway, he was a phenomenal phenomenal uh, player, and he was, but he was always in trouble. There would, there was something about him and nightlife and alcohol that, I mean, that was just, and one time he... I have trouble understanding that. So, <laughs> so uh, and Mock, as everybody knew, was a, you know, a hardcore disciplinarian and a really tough guy and, and you know, the little general. And so there was always kind of a, uh, it, it was kind of a dichotomy for the sports writers because they do, you know, here's Richie Allen doing everything that Mock would have just annihilated another player for, right? And, they, and so they asked him about it one time. They said, well, you know, what do you think of, of, you know, Richie? I mean, we know he's a good player, but he does all this extracurricular stuff. And, you know, what do you, what do you think about him? Jesus, what do I think about him? It's pretty simple. He loves high fastballs and fast highballs. That <laughs> 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 was pretty good. But that is pretty good. He was a, he was a tre- tremendous player. So we are live at the Pizza Luce in Eden Prairie. This is one of the shows we do live. We had a great crowd for the John Krasinski show at Tuttle's uh, last week. That will be back at Tuttle's. It's Tuttle's Eat, Play, Bowl in Hopkins. Tuttle'sBowling.com is the website. That'll be December 27th at 7 o'clock with pregame with Tin Cup Whiskey and a bunch of games and prizes and everything starting at 6.15. Please come out and join us there. Also, the uh, Youth Winter Wear Drive is being run in conjunction with the Cheryl Reeve Show Tuesday the 14th, December 14th, at the downtown Pizza Luce. That is always a big event. I recommend calling ahead and trying to reserve a table if you want to go. Uh, and Cheryl Reeve just named the, well, not just named, we know she will be named tomorrow as the USA basketball coach. Uh, and, of course, uh, even if I didn't do a podcast with her, I would say that was well-deserved uh, based on her resume and her experience with Team USA. Thanks for coming out to live shows. Thanks for supporting TalkNorth.com. We've grown a lot. We're going to be adding a couple big names in the next month, a couple names that are very familiar to Minnesota sports fans. So just thank you, everybody. And by the way, best way to listen, subscribe to your favorite podcast app. You can always go to talknorth.com and see all the shows and all the archives of shows. So the interesting thing about Tony Oliva and Jim Cott getting in together is they have completely divergent paths. Tony was brilliant for whatever it was, eight to ten years, absolutely dominant for a period of time before he got hurt and just couldn't perform at that level anymore because he couldn't move. And Jim Cott was the opposite. Maybe not dominant at any particular point of his career, but so good for so long that he built this incredible resume. He was really, really good. He was really dominant for, for three or four years. You know, he, 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 was, he was. He was terrific. But uh, beyond that, the legacy of Jim Cott is... Uh, pitching forever and being effective, you know, for literally forever and winning 16 gold gloves. I mean, that's not just a guy hanging around hoping somebody gives him a contract. Everywhere he, he pitched, you know, even after this first, you know, 10, 12 years that were, that were really good, 
uh, everywhere he pitched. People thought he could get people out, and he was getting people out. And and if he had to get, if it was around him on the mound, you were going to be out because <laughs> he's, uh, they, you know, Kitty Cat, uh, Kitty Cot was not just because of his last name; it was because of his his agility and his his ability to defend. And you know, Lavelle, you talked about how great he is to hear on the radio. He's he is the best. Uh, he he's one of the best announcers anyway. But he has left all pitchers far, far in yes. the dust. He knows more about the game than any pitcher that I've ever been around. And, and, uh, and he's able to articulate it, as Lavelle said. And I, I, I'm very, I've always been really impressed with, with him because for the most part, you know, starting pitchers especially, you know, they, they pitch, then they, you know, they play golf for four days, and then pitch again. And, <laughs> and, and, and so... Um, and that's that's a bit of an exaggeration, but but not so much that I won't say it. I mean, it's they, you know, and and they're they're not paying attention except the game that that, that they're pitching so much. But but not Kitty, boy, he was a he was an athlete. He was a baseball player, and he happened to be out there in the middle of the field pitching. But but he was a player. I was just counting up his uh, Gold Gloves. He ended up with 15 in his career. Oh, I thought it was 16. I mean, maybe I maybe I counted too fast and missed one, but I counted. I got 15 here. Okay. Maybe it's 16. Um, Won 20 games, three. That, that one year, his 20, age 27 year, he was like 25 and 12. Yeah. And 41 starts, 304 innings. You know, we're going to have trouble with pitchers. Oh, just to, like pitchers do today. Yeah, exactly. It's going to take a pitchers two years to get to <laughs> one year of Jim Cott, you know? Uh, and I'm serious. Yeah. 180 innings is going to be considered a workload, you know, in today's game uh, eventually, because we're not going to have too many 200 inning pitchers. And here's Cott throwing 300 and making 40 starts in a year. Which meant he was going seven to eight innings almost every every evening, every outing. So um, it was just consistency. You just see the, the double digit win figures. I know wins aren't that big of a thing anymore, but back then, you know, it just showed that he was a competitive, durable guy, and uh, he was a guy who was always in demand. So um, you know, know Lavelle, wins were wins were important. They were significant back then because, to your point, I mean, they pitched eight. They all the starters, if right. they were good, they pitched seven or eight innings, and they didn't want to come out of the game and. You could lose the game, you know, in the eighth inning, you know, uh, pretty easily because you were you were still out there. You know, this is another. Uh, actually, this ended up being a really good class for me because another former White Sox and Cot, you know, gets in. I got Mammy Noso, Cot. This is awesome. And it was 16 Gold Gloves. Roy was right about that. And 200. Here's the interesting thing because I, I voted in the. You know, I covered the NFL since 1989. I voted for the Hall of Fame too. And it's really hard in the NFL for the voters to discern which quarterbacks and receivers deserve to be in because now it's so easy to complete a pass. Where with Johnny Unitas, he, you know, he was wearing high tops, playing in <laughs> ankle-deep mud. But so were his receivers. one receiver going out, and, and the defenders were allowed to use crowbars and tasers on the receivers. <laughs> and, you know, and there were no sticky gloves. It was so, so, you know... We all know Johnny Unitas and Otto Graham were great, and you look at your numbers and you go, ugh. You know, the baseball, it's going the opposite way for pitchers, and I wonder if Jim Cott having 283 victories means more now than maybe did 10 years ago because we know nobody's ever going to get 283 victories again. Never. Yeah, yeah. really true. I don't know if they're going to get the 250. Yeah. Maybe 200. you probably get a few guys at 200, but 250 is going to be hard the, the way things are going. 
um, starters are making like 35 starts. You know, we're probably going to leak into like a six-man rotation here pretty soon. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, and uh, guys getting pulled after six innings. You know, average start in Major League Baseball is down to five and a third innings. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, the one, the one thing that got you fired up as a fan, that you opened up the paper that morning, and you would see like Jim Palmer's facing, uh, who can I come up with? Jim Cott. Jim, Jim, Jim Cott. And you're like, oh, man, that's a matchup I want to get behind, yeah, you know. You bet. You know, now you got what? The Rays are starting who? <laughs> the Twins are starting Nick Williams Asadio. Nick Anderson is starting as an opener. <laughs> you know, like what does this game come to? But you know, we're going to get to a point, and I was going to try to avoid this and just talk about the guys, but it's that are in uh, now in this this class. But it's hard to talk about. Things like when you bring up is the 283 wins, maybe that means more, you know, than it uh, even today. But the criteria for getting in the hall, I think, is is still today. I mean, everybody's, you know, it's why Jack Morris and and Bert Tuchelon didn't win 300 games, you know. But you look, I, I would just tell you as a player, you know, that played against you know, any player that's played the game for eight or ten years in a, in an era. There are guys that you just ask a player, you look at and, and say, I don't know what his, all his stats are, but he's a Hall of Fame player. He's one of the best players that is playing in the game today. And I don't know how it gets any simpler than that. I mean, I know you, okay, the Hall of Fame should be, you know, just the best of the best. But that's so unbelievably non-objective over the decades of, of baseball. It just isn't. It, it, it's, it's a subjective thing. It, it's a... You have to have 500 home runs or you have to have 300 wins or, you know, whatever that is. You have to hit 300 for 20 years. And there were so many good players, really good players, Hall of Fame caliber players that, you know, just not, not quite the way. Larry Walker, how did, what was the big, the big deal about Larry Walker? I mean, that guy, was, that guy could just flat hit and play and run and everything. So anyway, sorry about the little, the little rant. But, I mean, it, it gets back to Tony and Kitty. It, it, it's... Like, what do you have to do? If, and for how long? Yeah. If eight to ten years of that kind of excellence for Tony uh, isn't enough by itself to get, in the hall, and to get in the Hall of Fame, then I don't know what is. And I think you brought it up, uh, maybe, Jim, but I, I think even with his bad knee and the fact he couldn't run, he kept playing, you know, past. I mean, I think he still finished with an on-base plus slugging of over 800. Yeah, his, his numbers think you're were right. very similar yep. to Puckett's. I think you're right. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. But his first eight years were amazing when he was winning batting titles and just being a dominant force and going to All Star yeah. games annually. But it was the last four or five years where the knee injuries caught up with him. He still one of those years. He still hit like two ninety one and was more than useful at the plate. You know, so I was just looking it up. Uh, Clayton Kershaw and Max Scherzer do not have two hundred victories in their careers yet. Kershaw's at one eighty five and Scherzer's like at one ninety something. Verlander has two hundred twenty six wins. So uh, maybe, he get, maybe he gets to 250. He's probably going to try to sign a Scherzer deal here. Maybe he'll play for the Twins next year. Oh, we were supposed to mention Twins today, weren't we? Oh, uh, we can mention Twins. <laughs> we'll get into it. No, but actually, Roy opened the door. Let's walk through it in a second. But let's get to you know, the statistical comparison you're talking about. Tony Oliva, career OPS 830. OPS Plus, which is an uh, analytics way of kind of measuring all the other factors in, uh, 131. Kirby Puckett, OPS 837. OPS Plus 124. Joe Maurer, we think is a Hall of Famer, OPS 827, OPS 124. So Oliva played a corner position. It's not exactly the same thing as playing center field or catcher, 
but we all know he was a great hitter, and that only the knee kept him from doing historic things. So here, so as Roy brought it up, you know, why why keep this guy out? Why keep that guy out? Lavelle and I are members of the Baseball Writers Association. Lavelle's been a president. Uh, I used to vote. I don't anymore. Lavelle still votes. The argument among writers has always been the Baseball Hall of Fame is the most special and the best because it's the hardest to get in. And a national baseball writer will tell you, okay, every market has two to five people they think absolutely should be in the hall. And if you put let's say four more people from every market in, it's 120 more people, are you diluting the Hall of Fame? Uh, let's start, we're gonna get back to Roy on this, but let's start with Lavelle because you've been in the middle of all this. What do you think about all that? I don't think we're diluting the Hall of Fame. I think, I think yes, it's been hard to get into historically. And, and you know, back in the day before I became a voter, there was a lot of biases going on. You know, it was hard for some guys to you know, get in the hall. Uh, Jim Rice was one, just because he was a prickly, had a prickly demeanor when dealing with the media. Um, the well-liked guys, you know, got in. Everybody loved Kirby, so he got in immediately, you know. I think that's going to play in, in Maurer's favor as well. I think, and there used to be this thing about a first battle Hall of Famer shows that he was above the average Hall of Famer, you know, I, which I don't believe in, because I think we've had a, we've created a backlog of players that should be in because of this whole first ballot thing. So if you think he's a Hall of Famer, Vote for him now, and let's move on to the next case, you know? So I, I, do, I, I do think uh, we, have been, uh, we have been sanctimonious at times in how we have uh, handled our ballots and how we've determined who's a Hall of Famer or not. But in the end, I think, um, I think you, have seen, you do see the best of the best in the Hall, and I have no problems having a council of elders come in behind us and, and make decisions on some people we may not vote in. I have no problems with that. I'll interrupt on Jim Rice. I think, Lavelle, you and I have had different conversations with different people. Because yeah. when I would ask people, why, don't you, why haven't you voted for Jim Rice? Why is Jim Rice not getting in? And, and again, it's not like he didn't get votes. He just didn't get the 75% threshold, which right. is a very high threshold. And the explanation I got from writers was his primary skill, his primary value was hitting home runs. He was a right-handed power hitter in a ballpark perfectly conducive to right-handed home run hitters, and he finished his career 382 home runs at a time when everybody thought the barrier to greatness was 500 home runs. Whether you think that's a good argument or not, that's not the same thing as... I, I never had anybody tell me they kept him out because of personality. They all cited that. Now, flip side is OPS 854, OPS plus 128. Those are really good numbers. Those are really, really good numbers. And he hit 46 home runs one year. Yep. Uh, which, you know, he played 163 games a year. It also wasn't exactly the live ball era that he played in. You, you can say that again. No. Now, that, it was not the live ball era when he was playing. And, and I'll also I'll reiterate another point I've made about all this. I know that the baseball writers I know are very conscientious about this. They do a lot of research. They take it very seriously. They go through all kinds of permutations on their ballots. Most of the people I know also fill out 10 names because they don't want to leave, have somebody miss it, miss it by one vote because they didn't put them on. I still don't think writers should be voting. I just, A, I don't think it should be our responsibility. B, I think we kind of get used. Because the Hall of Fame gets to just kind of say, back away and say, oh, we have nothing to do with this. We have nothing, you know, it's all the writers. You don't need to blame them for everything. I mean, why are we doing the dirty work? Why are we taking the blame when it's really, has, it has nothing to do with us. It, it, it's, it should be people, you know, like the, this select elder committee coming in and deciding who's in the Hall of Fame. 
So you're for the comedian approach. I mean, I understand your argument. Um, thank you. Um, I, thank I, you. I do think there is merit to having people who have been around the game X amount of years to have their input on who belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, you like to think that most of us writers are objective and, and will see things black and white and be clear about it and don't, not have any preconceived notions or biases when filling out these ballots. But it seems like there is. But when you have a vote and you have 600 people voting, you're going to have a few wacky ballots. You just are, because that's what it is. It's a vote. Um, or everybody will vote for the same people every year, and, and it would be no, no big deal. So, um, and You know, Lavelle, I don't have any problem. I, I tend to agree with you guys. I, I, I don't think travesty is happening because guys, writers didn't vote for guys because they didn't like them. I, 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 I'm sure that there were there are some guys that you know carry a grudge like that, but I don't think that's significant. What I think is significant is the way the game changes from era to era. And I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing my argument, I think, a little bit, just in the fact that they're doing statistics so much differently now yep. than, than they used to, yep. right? Yep. So if they're, if they're doing all this, you know, war and B-war and, and, you know, OPS Plus and, and FIP and, you know, all Bob this. Ip. And BABIP <laughs> and, you know, all this stuff, then what is 300 game winner, 500 home runs, what, what's it got to do with anything? Uh, those thresholds it, don't mean much it, anymore it, now. It just, it just, yeah. it, and if guys, you know, and I don't think it's, I mean, I, I appreciate you're saying you being sanctimonious, but I, it's this feeling, okay, the hall has got to be the creme de la creme, but compared, who compared to whom? You know, really, Joe Bauer to Lou Gehrig? I mean, that's not right. I, I also, I do, I will say this, I like the transparency of Hall of Fame voting in baseball versus these other sports. I don't know who in the hell puts hockey players in the Hall of Fame. I know there's, uh, there's voters for the NBA Hall of Fame, and we know the committee approach to the NFL Hall of Fame, because Sid Hartman used to go down to these meetings and go, if you sons of bitches don't vote Ron Yeri into <laughs> the Hall of Fame, you guys are worthless. And it's, Sid, it's, Sid has kept people out of the Hall of Fame just because he's gone down there and gone off on people. I subbed for Sid once. I think it was in Tampa, and I sat in that room, and, I had, and it was my job to give the presentation for Carl Eller. And because Sid made everybody hate him, he did keep people out of the You know, notice how many Hall, Vikings Hall of Famers have gotten in since Mark Craig became our voter instead of Sid yeah. Hartman. Because Mark goes down there and makes a rational argument, and they go, okay, we don't hate this guy. I'm going to listen to him. Oh, he's got a good case. This, you know, this guy should be in the Hall of Fame. Sid kept Vikings out of the Hall of Fame. He really did. And when I went down to that room and I gave the speech, you know, I was a fairly young football writer. I knew some of the people in the room, but, you know, the big shooters didn't know who I was. They looked at me like, okay, Time for a piss break. So, you know, this guy's talking. I mean, they didn't listen to me. I had no chance of getting Carl early in. That's a terrible, that's a terrible system to have. No, I agree. I agree. So that's the one, I think that's the one advantage baseball has because most of us put our ballots online so people can see who we voted for in this sparks conversation. I still think that's the one, if you want to argue about what the national pastime is, the fact that people get so passionate about Hall of Fame votes and any rule changes to baseball is still more acute than it is to, than when there's changes with the other f sports. And that's, that's one thing I think baseball has an edge on in, uh, versus the other major sports. So, um, so I think that is one good thing about the writers voting for the Hall of Fame. 
I, I think we should just let the Hall of Fame handle it, and then we can rip them instead of them ripping us. Yeah, well, I, it would make sense to me to have the Hall of Fame pick, so, you know, a select committee of people that are representative of, of different uh, walks of life, writers, uh, maybe former managers and coaches, maybe former players. You general know, managers. I, general managers. They have a, you know, have a, a group that's, uh, uh, the cross-section is broad enough People that really know the game and know know who the players were and what they what they meant, and I don't want everybody in the Hall of Fame. I I like the I fact agree. that the Hall is an exclusive place. I've been there. I've looked at all the stuff. It gives me chills to you know walk through there. But I, I just think that there there's such a fine line, and the and the line moves all the time that there has there there can't be any. Uh, I mean, somebody gets five on home runs, they're in. Okay, they're in. They're in. I mean, Jim told me he had 600 home runs. He, he couldn't play defense, but he, I don't, you're in. He had 600 home runs. I don't care. It's not his fault that, uh, you know, that they made him a DA, that they had the DH in the American League. If he had, if they had not, did not have the DH in the American League, Jim told me would have played an awful lot of bad third base and first base and hit 600 <laughs> home runs and be in the Hall of Fame. Yep. So, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, a guy, the Hall of Famer is a Hall of Famer. Michael Martinez uh, should be a Hall of Famer. Who should be? Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez is absolutely a Hall of Fame player. He absolutely yep. is. Now, as far as Hold you... It. Wait, I'm way overdue with uh, thanking the people who make all this all possible. We are going to get back into this immediately. I do want to thank Memorial Blood Centers, uh, a great organization, does great work and sponsors a number of shows at talknorth.com. Local Memorial Blood Centers is looking for folks who want to help. All blood types are needed. It takes a generous type of person to give an hour out of their day to donate a pint of blood. But in the spirit of giving, it saves lives. In this era, when our supply chains are backed up, don't let blood be one of the things that we're running out of. Give blood and help out the folks in your community. Plus, all donors with Memorial Blood Centers have a chance to win streaming entertainment gifts. Visit mbc.org to schedule or call 1-888-448-3253. Also, Lavelle, tell us about Eleven Wells Distillery. We've both been over there. We've both enjoyed their whiskey. Yes, we have, and um, it's 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 your uh, it is your um, place for libation liberation, <laughs> as I like to say. You do like <laughs> to say that. It's true. I, I, I do because their whiskeys and their um, rums are fantastic. They make a tremendous old fashioned. It's a great place to go to before. Um, before a wild game or other events at the X, if you, in fact, if you mention that you're going to a wild game and now you get a buck off your drink. Ooh. And right now, um, they've got their holiday market going on on Saturdays. Um, and the Eleven Wells Brewery, by the way, is located just outside uh, downtown St. Paul at the Old Hams uh, Brewery. Um, so this, uh, this Saturday, the holiday market continues. You, you can shop from local uh, makers. You can buy tacos. You can have artisanal Bloody Mary you can buy booze. It's the holiday season. Booze is always a great gift. Uh, you can enjoy a couple of cocktails and listen to live music. And that's going on from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. this Saturday, the 11th, and next Saturday, the, uh, the 18th, uh, right outside 11 Wells Brewery. I'm sorry, Distillery. So get involved. It's a great spot. Absolutely. Let's also thank Better Edge, a great place to place your bets online. Combine your love for competition, social, and sports with Better Edge, the sports betting exchange that actually gives back to its betters. Better Edge is a brand new locally based betting platform meant to connect users and attempt to add some coin to the bank. Completely legal and 100% fun, compete against friends, sports insiders, and yourself with Better Edge in a number of different sports and event competitions. In fact, you can follow me. My username is Sonny Everett on this platform to see what my picks are. 
Use code CHIN for a free $10 when you sign up by visiting betteredge.com. That's B E T T O R edge.com. And thanks as always to Minnesota Propane. Hi, I'm Laura Shara. And did you know that a propane gas furnace lifespan averages 20 years, while electric heat pumps only last 14 years? And propane furnaces work in all temperatures while delivering warm and consistent heat to your home. Why buy two heating systems when one propane furnace can do it all? It lasts longer, works better, and it costs less. These things and more are done with propane today. The right energy right now. I will say that when I was voting for the Hall of Fame, I would always fill out the maximum 10 names. And that's where I got in trouble with, with some people like Jim Cott because there were t- I thought he was a Hall of Famer and I voted for him. There were actually a couple of years where I thought there were 10 people that I had to vote for ahead of Jim Cott. That's how deep these fields have been. Yes, exactly. And uh, I, I, I don't think I've, I've voted for le- less than six people in any year that I've had a ballot. And uh, I think I got up to nine last year. Um, there's still some, I've always been a Lee Smith ag- advocate. Um, right now, I'm a, been a, I've been a Gary Sheffield advocate because I believe Sheffield was one of the more feared hitters in baseball for the totality of his career. You know, other people would, you know, disagree with that. Um, so, um, well, I want to get back to Roy's point about assigning a committee of people who can um, look at these objectively. I will say this. Uh, once again, my Chicago bias is rearing its ugly head. Being a Chicago guy, Harold Baines is probably my second favorite White Sox player of all time, Okay. Harold Baines should not be in the Hall of Fame. But the only reason Harold got in the Hall of Fame was because Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony La Russa were on the committee that year, and they pretty much railroaded everybody into voting for Harold Baines. So you have to, you have to watch out with people who might have agendas as your former summary committees to determine who gets in. And that is the problem with the committee approach. I just think I'd rather see the baseball writers wash their hands of it. One thing I, I – and just this is my pet peeve about all this is I have friends – I have people who I otherwise respect in other walks of life who will get mad at me because we haven't voted Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Pete Rose is not on the ballot. We cannot vote for him. Even if we believe he should be in the Hall of Fame, we can't vote for somebody who is not placed on the ballot. That's just my, that's my gripe for the day. <laughs> yep, that's up, that's, I think it's up for, to the Hall of Fame committee to allow his name to be put on the ballot. Yep. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon because after all the years of him denying it, when it was time for him to make money off a book, he said, yeah, I did it, and I'm sorry. Yeah, and, we all, and listen, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've talked to Pete. I, I knew, especially when I was a beat writer, I knew a lot of people were involved with all that stuff. I can't be more specific. Uh, he bet on his team. He may have bet against his team. Uh, he lied about everything he did, period. And, and, and as soon as you vote, as soon as you bet on your team, even if you're voting for, betting on them to win, that's not a defense because no. that means – if you're managing that team, that's affecting how you're running that game. Yeah, you're going to use your best relievers in that game and yeah. maybe not in the next game. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. And we're not going to go down the Rose path. <laughs> I, I don't want to go the, down the Primrose path. Hey, let's go back to uh, Tim Kirkshin. Uh, Kirkshin is one of the most enthusiastic, crazed baseball writers I have ever met. Uh, when I became a baseball writer, I switched from NFL writing to baseball writing, and he was one of the many people who just kind of, they welcome you to the game. They welcome you to the, you know, I don't want to say the fraternity, because there are a lot of women working, the, the club. And when, I, I still remember two of my favorite spring training basketball playing experiences. One was playing with Puckett, the other was playing with Kirkshin. Timmy Kirkshin is about five foot two, and 
he is one of the best basketball players I have ever seen wow. in my life. He <laughs> shoots quick release 28-footers that even in the wind he would swish. <laughs> he and I took on three guys who were all bigger than both of us, and we beat them like 15 to 2. Uh, I don't know, uh, any youngins in here? Uh, Timmy would just shoot it, and I would chase down the, the long rebounds. He said, you know, you remind what my dad used to say. He said, you hustle like a $5 whore. That's uh, <laughs> the best compliment I ever got as an athlete. Uh, he was a stunning basketball player. He used to go play with, like, Ripken and all those guys. Really? Out at Ripken's house. Fantastic basketball player. But Timmy's one of those people you find, I think, more in baseball than any other media who is in it because he loves the freaking game. Yes. He wants to be at the ballpark every day, all day. He keeps scrapbooks filled with... Uh, box scores from every day in baseball history. He is just thrilled to walk through the gates every day. Yeah, he um, and, and, and he was an incredibly nice guy, one of the nicest writers yes. on, the, on the circuit. And a lot of stuff that he has said on ESPN, I've heard him say in press boxes to me. Yep. Um, something happened in the game in Baltimore, and it was like the first time it ever happened in major history. And I'm like, well, that's rather obscure. I know it's first time in Lavelle. Major League Baseball's been around for over 100 years. Anything that happens for the first time is a big thing. Yes. <laughs> she has said multiple times on ESPN. And um, I'm, I'm just so thrilled for him because it's just as a totally upbeat guy when he's at the ballpark, just likes talking the game and talking to coaches and talking to um, um, other media members. And just really, he, he's an example that you don't have to be a jackass in order to get the information <laughs> that you want to be a good reporter. You know, he's probably uh, like K State number one and how to be nice about going about your job and still being effective. So um, I'm glad he went to ESPN and has had the career that he's had there. And I'm glad he's getting, uh, he's going to have his day in the sun in, um, in Cooperstown. I had the privilege of the year I was president to introduce Roger Angel uh, as the, uh, as the entrant in the, in the writer's wing. And it was just great getting to know him and writing a speech on his behalf. And I'm sitting there, I know, we're sitting next to each other. It's 15 minutes before. The, uh, the ceremony, and Roger's just quiet. He's not saying a word, you know. And I turned, Roger, how are you holding up? And there was this pause. He says, I'm in Valhalla. And I'm sitting there just going, wow, that's just pretty freaking cool, <laughs> you know. And he got up and made, he made a great speech. And, um, and uh, what happened? Oh, I'm kind of digressing here because I'm thinking about the stories from that year. Because all the Hall of Famers show up for the ceremony for the person who's going in the writer's wing. So it's the day before the regular induction ceremony. So the bus is getting off, you know. And uh, the bus is, I mean, guys are getting off the bus. And they're getting off one by one. And Gaylord Perry steps off the bus, stumbles and falls on the ground, you know. And Carlton Fisk has a suit. He's wearing a suit with Crocs on. <laughs> <laughs> so Fisk gets off the bus. He's like, Gaylord, I told you to drink after the ceremony, not before. <laughs> You know, so so they're, they're, they file in and they're sitting there behind. And um, I met Johnny Bench afterwards because there was like a reception back at the at the museum. You know, and Johnny Bench goes up to Lavelle and Johnny Bench. I just want to let you know I really enjoyed your speech today. And I'm sitting there going, oh, the, oh. <laughs> <laughs> "Wow, it's Johnny Bench. This is cool." You know, and uh, so just that whole. Just to see how much they appreciate it. It was just for the writer that's going to the Hall of Fame. But, you know, Angel was, like, welcomed by the Hall of Famers. Like, he was, like, almost part of their club, you know? If you, ha if you haven't had the experience, you know, uh, Kirkshins for Baltimore, 
And if you ever watch The Wire, you know there is a dramatic Baltimore accent. And, it, and the O is pronounced ooh. Uh, and Scott Van Pelt and Tim Kirkshin, whether on the radio or on, on Van Pelt's late night ESPN show, if they ever get together and start doing the Baltimore accent together, it, it, I cannot stay upright. It is the funniest <laughs> damn thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm sorry, Roy, I interrupted you. No, no, you didn't. I, it, it, I'm just I, listening to Lavelle talk about the, you know, just how the, the whole Hall of Fame experience is revered. You know, re- players, writers, the whole... I'll go back to something that uh, Lavelle said earlier about the, the thing that baseball has over every other major sport, and it's, it's the statistics and the legacy and the, the common feeling about how important things are in the game, different things, the Hall of Fame, and uh, what goes on in a clubhouse and, and statistics and, you know, passing down stuff from player to player from old, and from uh, writer to writer and from dad to kids sitting in the stands. And the writers are part of all that. I mean, they, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't know about players nearly as much if it weren't for, you know, what you guys do all the time. And it's... It's part of the whole sphere. It's part of the whole club, uh, and I'm glad to see I'm glad to see writers uh, of the caliber that are in the Hall of Fame. I'm really glad to see them in there, and I'm, I was really glad to hear that the players showed up, and that's great. I mean, that, that just that kind of is the point that I was going to make. That it occurred to me that there's just another example of why baseball, even though it doesn't have the the same kind of pizzazz that uh, the NFL has now. There, there's no comparing uh, any other sport to the national pastime, just because of all of that, um, all that, that beautiful, I don't know, the, the whole scenario. I, and one day we're going to be allowed back in clubhouses, I would believe, uh, once we get through this whole virus thing, if we ever... I've been told that Manfred desperately wants us back in there. And I think one reason that uh, makes baseball writing a cut above is because... It's an everyday sport. You could be in a clubhouse every day talking to someone, and you have the opportunity to humanize these players a little bit better than I think you do the other sports. Yeah, no, no question. And back to Tony. Can we go back to Tony? Yeah, one more <laughs> note on that. This, and baseball is an oral history sport. It's a yes. storyteller sport. Yeah. Yes. Football's about next yeah. Sunday and winning the championship, and nothing else matters, and break your leg and play through it and all that. Baseball is really the only pure storyteller sport, and it's the only sport you, where you walk into the clubhouse and people want to tell stories. You know, they want to sit around and tell stories. Uh, I'm sorry, Roy, go ahead. No, you're right. I mean, one of the things, my favorite thing, I mean, baseball players are naturally funny. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, know, I don't know exactly why that is, whether it's, whether it's um, gallows humor. I mean, you know, you, you come into a season, you play almost virtually every day for six months, and you're with the same uh, other 24 guys, and you see them more than you see your families. Literally, you can you can you can time it out. You see them more than you, you see your families. And you're stuck with these guys, and it's like what somebody would say at the, after the you know right, right before the uh, you know you're putting on your uniform. The last game of the season, you're not going to be in the playoffs, and some you know it's the last game, and someone someone invariably says, "Come on, guys, nine more innings, we can go home and choose our own friends." <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's a you get in the you know you lock arms and you, and you look each other in the eye in spring training and you try to take the hill right and and you're doing it, it's band of brothers kind of thing and so the 
So the humor that comes out of that is, is just priceless. It always has been, and, and uh, it still is that way. It's not as, in my opinion, and this is not all I long for the good old days. I just, and Jim, I think you, you, you and I have talked about this too. It, it's not quite the same because guys, um, it, that, that sitting around talking about stuff just as a guy's is has kind of fallen by the wayside, and yes. and, and so the guys, the the guys don't try to use their their humor just to get through the day. You know, I mean, you're you're, you know, you're over eighteen, and you could use uh, you know uh, for Mike Redmond to uh, go on a walk. <laughs> you know, you could <laughs> you could, you could use that. You know, and. Uh, um, you know, like Herbie, you know, he's, you know, oh for whatever he was. And, and uh, some guy came up and said, Herbie, can I talk to you about, uh, you know, the fact that people think the ball's juiced up, right? And, and, you know, Herbie's immediate response was, wait, you think my three hoppers in the second baseman are getting there faster now? You know, I mean, I mean it's, it, that, is, that stuff happens all the time. And, it, and that's, that's part of, the whole, part of the whole deal. And other sports are... The goal is dominance. You want to dunk on somebody, you want to run somebody over, you know. In hockey, you might want to punch them out. Baseball, everybody knows they're going to fail a certain percentage of the time. And it's built, it's baked into the game. Failure is baked into the game. And you spend a massive amount of time with each other. And you spend time on buses and planes and hotels and downtime before the game and downtime after the game. I mean, you have to have humor. You, you absolutely have to have it. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's one of those things where it's a, it's a natural selection kind of deal. It's a Darwinism kind of deal, right? Because one of the things that you have to be able to have besides, you have to be able to run and throw and hit and field and you know, do all those kinds of things. But you have to have what, you have to have humor or something inside you to get you through all this, all the stuff you yep, have to get yep. through. And, and Generally speaking, with players, it's humor. Yeah, there's healing and laughter, you know. Yeah. And so if, if a team's struggling, if a guy's scuffling, you always have a teammate to lean on, you know. And I never knew Tony the player. I knew Tony the, the occasional coach and then Tony the president in the clubhouse, you know, uh, his current age. And it seemed like he would be the guy who would be definitely a charis, char, chemistry, glue, uh, clubhouse atmosphere guy, you know, in, no in question. his time. No question. Because I see him when he comes in, well, when we're allowed in the clubhouse, Tony's yakking, so he's got someone telling us, he's telling someone's stories in the clubhouse now. And he's, what, 78? I think he is now? You know, he's all of that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. But, you know... And he's almost ready to learn English. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his speech is going to be something else. It's going to be great. I think <laughs> Royce, I think he just have Royce, Royce up there as a translator. <laughs> yeah. I, I ask... Um, I, I asked the uh, Latin players one time when we were playing in the late 70s, and, and I asked them one, one time, went to... Uh, uh, Jose Morales and Bombo Rivera and some of the guys. I was hey, just, you know, tell me something. Just between, just between us, when Tony speaks Spanish to you guys, does he have a speech impediment? <laughs> I mean, I, is it is it right. a, is it is there an issue here? Right. <laughs> you know, but I mean, I'm, I'm and what serious. they say? They they just start laughing. They go, no, <laughs> no. He did. <laughs> but the thing about Tony is uh, his genius as a hitter extended beyond just his talent, which was genius level. But you, you watch all-star games. I, I uh, was watching the uh, one all-star game, all game they had. I think it was the 65 all-star game they, they had on uh, uh, this past year. 
And um, I think they brought, it was somebody, unbelievable, was that um, Koufax? Or I, I think it was Koufax that they brought in. And Tony, you know, left-handed against left-handed, late in the game, he gets up there and just hits a rocket, a left-center double. I mean, it didn't matter the caliber of pitcher it was. I mean, he, he could just flat hit. And the thing about his genius as a hitter was he knew how, what he was trying to do, too. He, and he would say, he said so many smart things to me that, that I tried to take to heart immediately. And, and after, you know, after the fact, and it, even now, I think back some of the things that he said, I, man, it, it is, it, it, it's so pedestrian, but it's so smart. He told me one time, he, we were taking batting practice at the old Met, and he said, Sheepa, man, I see, I see these other players, I see them get in the batter's box, and they hit the ball to, as a left-handed hitter, he was left-handed, so he always you know, came up with like your left-handed sense, and, and they hit the ball to left field, and they hit the ball to left field, and they hit the ball to left field, and, it, is it, and then they get in the game, they want to hit the ball, they want to hit the ball out of the ballpark. <laughs> he says, if you want to hit the ball out of the ballpark, then in batting practice, you have to hit the ball out of the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> And, it was, and I thought about that, it was, it, and he's right. You know, you have to know what your pitch is, they, and you have to know how to get the big end of the bat to it. And even though it's a lot slower in batting practices in the game, you still there, you still have to get the bat to the, get the feeling of where do I, where's the big end of the bat have to be on this pitch for it to go out of the ballpark. And he was so full of all kinds of stuff like that as a hitting coach. And I, he got such a bad rap, and I tease him all the time about, about his communication skills. But, but, but I, under, I, understood, I understood him. You got the point. And, and you get the point, and the point is all, was always, always right on. And, and he couldn't, I mean, guys, he couldn't coach guys today because he told me, um, uh, and I've got a bat here, I'd love to be able to, you know, yeah, to demonstrate at some point in time, but um, it, it was a, you know, you have to hit the guy the way you can hit the guy. So he said, if a guy was throwing hard, sudden Simon Dowell, he threw hard, he threw hard. And he said, so I didn't try to pull him. I get off the plate and I close up, I close up the stance and, and I choke up a little bit and I let the ball hit and I go, yeah. And hit the ball to left. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of guys think, well, how, wh how do you, what do you mean? How do you do that? Guys have their stances and, their, you know, and everything. And this has been going on for a long time. Pete Rose told me one time, there's four key things to, to hitting. Move up on the plate, move away from the plate. Move up in the box, move back in the box, right? Well, that's what... Crew did and, that. And Crew did it too. And Tony, and, and Tony says, and you know, uh, Catfish Hunter... Oh, I kill it. I kill it because I, I, I get right up on the plate and I open up my stance and I pull him. And I hit one in Kansas City so far into the night. And, and, you know, and it was, it, it's just so wonderful to talk to him. But his point was always the right one. It's like, what do I have to do to be successful against this particular guy, this particular bat, or the, and this series, series of bats? And all you ever need to know about Tony is when he said one time, I like it when guys like Gene Palmer and Catfish Hunter and, and um, Vita Blue and you know, all these guys, I, I like it when they pitch. I go, what are you nuts? I mean, what, I, I'm looking at him, why do you want to do this? 
because they always, they always, I go to get four at bats because they're going to be in the game and I'm going to get four at bats. I won't be two bats against this guy and then another guy, another guy. Jim Palmer in the game, I get four at bats. By the third at bat or fourth at bat, fourth at bat, I got him. <laughs> See, he'd be, it'd be tough for him in today's baseball because he probably would face four different pitchers. That's what, yeah, that's what he was saying. Of course, exactly he would also probably face four mediocre pitchers and he'd yeah. kill them. He would, he, would, he, would, he, would, he would whippy. Yes, he would whippy. Uh, Roy, you brought a bat. Should we do a, a Tony O demonstration? You up for that? Oh, sure. I mean, I, we've got an audience of four guys back here. <laughs> and while Roy's... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Let's do that, Roy uh, Lavelle. Did you have any final thoughts before we wrap the uh, live portion of the show? No, I'm just I'm thinking about what Tony's speech is going to be like at Cooperstown, and how long is it going to last, and how many languages is going to be broadcasted in. It's going to be great. It's, it's going to be a blast. And how long? Yeah, I'm just thinking. We've got five or six people who have been voted in, and it could be eight speeches that day. It's going to be a long, long day because I think the year I covered Maddox, Glavin, uh, Frank Thomas. Tony La Russa and Bobby Cox were all got in. Wow. And they all had 12 well, I, minutes. They all had 12 minutes each. I can top that. I covered it the year that Puckett and Winfield went in, and Winfield talked longer than everybody else combined. I've heard about that speech. They still talk about that he's speech. He's still talking. They, yeah. just, they just pulled him off the stage, but yeah. he's still talking. I mean, like, Hall of Famers are in the back going, come on, Winnie, wrap it up. Come on, Winnie, wrap it up. It was hot, out here. hot as hell, man. Bring a, bring a sun hat when you cover that Hall of Fame speech. Well, the day of the ceremony, I rode down the elevator with Frank Thomas and his family. And I was like, you ready for your speech? Yeah, yeah. You got a time now? Yep, 12 minutes on the dot. And I go, did you factor in time for blubbering? And his wife starts <laughs> laughing. And Frank's like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Man, that dude started bawling while he was walking up to the podium. <laughs> and he just cried through the entire... And then... And then he proceeded to name almost every teammate he ever played with. So he's doing Little Hurt, One Dog, Blackjack. He's doing all the nicknames. He's like, bam, bam, bam. So apparently at the Hall of Fame dinner afterwards, someone had him a, 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 dick, a telephone book. We made just in case you miss. <laughs> so it was, it was just awesome. Hey, thanks to those of you who came out. We're going to give you a Roy Smalley demonstration here for your uh, time and effort. Thanks to uh, Karen Cleary, our sales executive. She's doing a great job. If you want to advertise with this show or anywhere in the network, you can always reach her at K-C-L-E-A-R-Y at TalkNorth.com. Thanks, as always, to Brandon for keep holding this thing together. And uh, let's check out Roy's Tony Oliva impersonation here. Mm-hmm.